I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, the first phase of the official investigation into New Zealand's handling of COVID-19 is nearly over, yet we've barely heard a thing about it. Its legislated name is the Royal Commission of Inquiry in Lessons Learned from Aotearoa New Zealand's response to COVID-19 that should be applied in preparation for a future pandemic. In the UK, at a similar public inquiry, some shocking and pretty remarkable evidence is being reported day after day. This inquiry has been called the trial of Boris Johnson, with intense criticism of the dithering and dysfunction at the heart of his government. There wasn't a single day that she could recollect where rules were properly followed in Downing Street. One of the most incendiary claims made about the former Prime Minister during the pandemic is that he once said he'd prefer to let the bodies pile high than have a second lockdown. Uh, talks about a toxic environment that affected decision-making, so that female experts were ignored and women overlooked. Don't expect any of that drama here. Te Tera Arai Uruta is not a public hearing. And because of that, ours is budgeted to cost $15 million versus the UK's $250 million. Today, I talked to the Royal Commission Chair, Professor Tony Blakely, about what he's hearing so far, why ours is being done in private, and what we'll get out of it. Tony, you're one of the faces of, of COVID. You've been regularly in the media, but I think we, we remember you as, as the person that was called on from Melbourne. <laughs> so tell me a bit about your background and how you ended up doing this job. So I'm an epidemiologist and public health medicine specialist, and I spent the majority of my career at the University of Otago in Wellington. In 2019, I jumped the ditch and went to University of Melbourne. And when the pandemic broke out, it was, I was in an interesting position because I wasn't on committees. I could actually speak freely. And I realised that there was a role for people who can say on the one hand and on the other hand, that is weighing up the pros and cons of different interventions because let's face it, a pandemic requires um, a very nimble response. So I stepped into that space with some other people from academia. And I think that's probably the reason why I've segued into being the chair of the commission, because any epidemiologist who's a New Zealander is probably conflicted out. But I have some distance, but also know the New Zealand situation well and could step in as chair of this commission. Were you asked to chair the commission or did you apply for it? No, asked to. Uh, sort of you're sitting in your office and you get this call and it's say, could you please bring back the Prime Minister's office? And you're wondering, well, which Prime Minister, which side of the Tasman and why do they want to speak to me? So that's how it starts. Um, and then uh, myself, uh, John Whitehead, previous Secretary of the New Zealand Treasury, and the Honourable uh, Heke Parata, previous uh, Minister of Education, the three of us were brought together to be the three commissioners on Titera Arai Urata, which is the Commission on COVID-19 Lessons. And when you talk about the Prime Minister, that was Jacinda Ardern at the time? That was Jacinda Ardern at the time, although it wasn't her who was um, doing the calls with me, it was other people in the okay, office. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and what, did you say yes immediately? I uh, did a bit of due diligence, as you would, wanted to find out the level of independence. Uh, but I was both honoured to be invited to do the role, but also, and still do, feel the weight on my shoulders of doing the role. I mean, so this was an extraordinary event, uh, 100 years since the last pandemic that was large. And 
it's our responsibility to take the lessons from this pandemic so that we can respond better to the next pandemic whenever it arrives. So it's an extraordinary privileged position to be on this commission because we talk to a huge range of people, extraordinary insights you gain and you learn from previous prime ministers, from people who are working on construction sites and affected by it. But with that, it's not really privilege, with that insight into so many different New Zealanders' perspectives on it comes the weight of responsibility that we come up with a report that's really useful for the future. And the interesting thing is, you're already out there talking to people, as you say. We haven't really heard much about it. Is that a deliberate thing? Yeah, it's an interesting situation. So essentially you've got to pull back to the Inquiries Act that Geoffrey Palmer and others rewrote, and it gives you two ways to do an inquiry. The first way is where you've got lawyers for this side and lawyers for that side and public hearings. It's a sort of an adversarial approach. The government said, we don't want that, and we're quite happy to not do that way. We're doing it the non-adversarial way. Now, how does that work? Well, essentially, our terms of reference are really wide (laughs) and quite deep as well. We've got a lot of territory to cover. So what we're doing is we're doing, I think we're up to over 200 organisations we've spoken to now in engagements. So we do that in a confidential setting so that we can cut to the chase, if you like. We can get more done in an hour than it might take eight hours in a courtroom to do. Why does it have to be private? I mean, the other commissions of inquiry, such as, um, say, the one into state care, that's all out in the open. And it seems to have expanded as people have heard the stories and whatnot. Why does this have to be private? Yeah, it's a good question. We are acutely conscious of the fact that it's not as public to the public. And so we're naming all the people we meet where there's video clips on our website of people talking about how they came to the inquiry, not exactly what was said in the inquiry because that's confidential, um, so that there is some visibility in what we're doing. And then again, we're coming up to that public part where the public can put in their information and we can collect that and then that information, if people don't tick a box and say they don't want it to be, that will become part of the historical record through archives. So we're trying to make it as transparent as we can, yet cover huge territory by having free and frank discussions with people. Have you talked to anybody who went along to the protests at Parliament? Um, I'll speak in general terms about this, because obviously I need to protect people's confidentiality, but yes, yes, and we're going to speak to more people like that. Um, How do you reach those people? um, Through a range of mechanisms. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about that, but we've spent considerable time thinking about how to reach to and engage with people that might have had sympathy with the protests on the parliamentary lawns or went there, or people who elected not to have a vaccine and ended up losing their job because of it. We we very much want to talk to those people because their experiences are part of the total New Zealand experience and they are representative of one of the things you've got on your scales. You know, when you're dealing with a pandemic, you're constantly making trade-offs. And so let's think about the person who lost their job because of vaccine mandates, say. Their, Their human rights were curtailed or limited for a while during the pandemic for the greater public good. Now, was that the right amount of curtailment we make the right decisions, there'll be a perspective you can form on that and it will eventually come down to values about how you weigh up various ethics and proportionality. We will try and 
get those experiences of those people, listen to those experiences of those people, to provide that evidence base, to provide that narrative, to provide those stories, to help us think about how you make decisions when you've got these conflicting rights and societal goals. And to try and then lift it back up, having got those experiences, to a place where we can make good findings and good recommendations about processes you might use in the future. Mm. Dame Jacinda, you've spoken to her? Yes, we've spoken to the previous Prime Minister. Uh, Brian Tamaki? No, we haven't spoken to Brian Tamaki. D- do you intend to? Uh, not at this stage. What happens when you go into these groups? It's about getting people to talk, isn't it, to open up. So how do you do that? So you might pay to think about three types of engagements we do. There'll be those engagements where we're talking to the previous Director General of Health. So it's very much, you know, in a room, serious discussion, that sort of thing. Uh, then the next level would be, and I've done quite a few of these, where we go out and visit a site. So, for example, I went to ESR and looked at all their labs. I've been to a few public health units. And then you've got the ones where we're going into a location like a school or we ask people from various ethnic groups to come together and we'll have a meal with them and talk about their perspectives. Um, we're doing one tomorrow, I think it is, with a whole range of Pacifica groups in South Auckland. So when we go into that type of environment, um, we go in with a sort of facilitative approach. We want to hear the perspectives from all the people there as quickly as we can because, you know, there's only so much time. Try and get round the group, hear what the, each person wants to put on the table as their couple of key lessons. And then... What, what, what I, my approach to it is to listen to all those and then pick out a few themes and then dig deeper into that with a discussion. Uh, so you've got this group discussion over an hour to two hours. What has stood out for you so far? What are some su- surprises, maybe? Well, yeah, surprise, non-surprise. Um, the first thing that really comes across is the huge mahi, the huge commitment, the huge goodwill of so many people. People really committed to what the team of five million was achieving and achieved. It was quite an extraordinary effort. So, you know, that's a fairly dominant theme. And people are rightly proud of, most people are rightly proud of what New Zealand did, certainly in that early phase. Then the pandemic was in phases in every country, and New Zealand is no exception. Another sort of theme that comes out was, it's hardly surprising, bumpy on the way out. Um, bumpy, and as you open up to the uh, rest of the world, and you know, maybe that could have been done better. And that's our job to try and find those lessons. Probably did quite well. Could have done better. So we're trying to pull those uh, lessons out from that bumpy exit. And it was bumpy for all countries. We were all building the plane as we fly it to use that analogy. But the really deep thematic analysis that will be done next year as we really look through all the transcripts, look through all the information we've got, and look overseas, and I won't come back to that, for the lessons learned to come up with a plan. Now, when I say look overseas and the deep analysis, I think it's really critical that we understand that the pandemic we had was just one possible pandemic. The future pandemic, when it arrives, there will be another one, unfortunately, spoiler alert, Mm. it will almost certainly be a different type of virus it will behave in different ways. So the virus will be different. Our society will be different as well. We'll be in a different cultural and social milieu, whatever that is. But also the tools and the toolkit that we have to use in the next pandemic 
will be different. We'll be able to produce mRNA vaccines a lot quicker. We will have a better understanding of how to do managed quarantine at the border. The tools will be different. So a really challenging task for our commission is to try and think of the future scenarios of what a pandemic might be like, but lean back into the past, lean back into 2020 to 2022, and try and take the lessons out of there about how do you make decisions in the context of uncertainty? How do you weigh up what is proportionate? Those are the sort of lessons we're looking for on how you make those decisions so when the next pandemic comes around, which will be different on the virus and the way that we can address it, is that we've got some generic lessons out of our experience this time around that we can use to do the next pandemic well. I would have thought one of the things is that we don't know when that next pandemic will be, but if it's in the generation that we're in now, whether people will even... You know, this team of five million, I I just wonder, are we going to get that team of five million again, given what a lot of people feel about it? Yeah, so I don't want to jump to our conclusions on the rapport, so let's sort of keep this discussion on the high level, but I think the point you raise is really important. The team of five million was an extraordinary achievement, Uh, just amazing. Um, That collectivity uh, and social license that the public gave to the government to do quite an extraordinary thing, it's not going to last forever. There will be fade on that. And so one of the things that we want to look at from the lessons in the last pandemic, knowing that that social license wouldn't last forever and you couldn't stay in a collective sort of isolation for the rest of the world forever, everybody knows that, is the things that we could have done that might have lessened some of that um, loss of social licence and lessen the chance you're going to end up with parliamentary protest, that sort of thing. Going forward, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, I think, to work out that probably in the next five to ten years, the chance of a whole country coming together to do the same sort of response would be harder. But let's think about this. We don't know what the next pandemic is going to be like, and we can't take tools out of the toolkit or take tools off the table. We may need to do lockdowns, heaven forbid, if the next pandemic is a virus that's even more infectious and more virulent, you do not want to take that tool out of the toolkit and say, never lockdowns again. What you do want to say is something like, well, if we got a virus that was a bit like SARS-CoV-2 again, it would be really good to manage that without needing to do a strict lockdowns by having better contact tracing, having the ability to surge your testing, having the understanding of aerosol transmission so that we can mask up, doing all those sites and measures so that we have to use fewer for less of the time heavy you know, tools out of the toolkit like lockdown. So to come back to your point, would there be the social licence to do that type of response again? There would be less of it, but you can't take it off the table because you don't know what's coming at you next. But I would sincerely hope, and for me, this is a really key personal motivation for being on this commission is that if it was the same type of virus in the future, we could manage it in a way that required less of those blunt instruments and a little bit more nuance. The vaccine rollout, is that part of it? I mean, that was pretty thorny. Yeah, the vaccine rollout was pretty thorny. So let's just pull back to our terms of reference here. So our terms of reference are really wide. It includes effects on the economy, effects on society, how we did MIQ, the whole whole shebang. 
but not the vaccine efficacy per se. Mm. So what is not in our scope is going back and looking at all the randomised trials and saying, well, the vaccine effectiveness looked like it was 82% 60 days after your vaccine. Why would you do that? I mean, to say there's been so much money invested in that worldwide, and that is now factual knowledge. So we're not looking at vaccine effectiveness. Mm. But we are looking at how we use that tool. So how did we roll out the vaccine? Was it done well? Did we get to the right groups in the right pace of time? That is within scope for us. As are things like... um, did we use things like rapid antigen tests at the right time? So those are things that we are considering. Again, we're not here to lean back into the past to blame. We're here to lean back into the past to take the lessons out. I was reading Duncan Greaves' story on this in, in the spin-off, and it was headed a kinder, gentler sort of inquiry compared with other countries. But, and I know you're saying we're not, you're not looking for people to blame, but... Won't people be wanting some answers on some of those things, those controversial things, like the way the vaccine was rolled out, particularly in the Māori communities, because that was a big issue. And I suppose those lockdowns, because in the end, that was also a big issue in this last election. So, yeah, exactly. Um, And one way to think about it is the, the final report will have findings in it and recommendations. Now the recommendations will be obviously very much forward looking. The findings will be leaning back into the past to give us the platform to make those recommendations but the findings will include an analysis of what happened. So for example to use your uh, example there of vaccines and uh, reach into say uh, rural Maori communities and how that was done um, that is something that we're hearing quite a lot of feedback about. And so the, the, the level that we're, we're hearing all the feedback, but we're trying to aggregate up to that level to think about, well, how would you do that better next time? Uh, looks like iwi providers did really well here and the GPs did well over here. I'm not going to say exactly what our analysis is at this point, but looking at how that played out and how you might arrange those provider mechanisms in the future to do a better job. And here's an interesting thing, is sometimes what you do in a pandemic gives you new lessons about what to do in peacetime or between pandemics. Our terms of reference are about a pandemic. However, or and, or but, whichever which you want to use, this century is different from last century. We, we seem to be facing a lot more risks, be they climate emergencies, be they earthquakes, although that's quite random, but we're also seeing threats like cybersecurity, and these are all emergencies that a country would need to respond to. We'll focus on the pandemic, but we will be giving a lot of thought to how our recommendations for how to respond to a pandemic fit within a wider scheme of how you prepare for and respond to emergencies. When you get out and about, what, what, what's the impression you get from people? I mean, are people still kind of traumatised by the experience or angry or... Do they just don't want to know about it? So this is triggering. Mm. <laughs> I know myself, um, you know, fond? No, not so fond. Mm. Memories of getting up every morning and doing more TV interviews in my backyard, um, getting up at five o'clock to speak to Mike Hoskins, and Radio New Zealand was a bit kind. They didn't get me up till 6.30 to speak to them. And it, it, it is quite triggering. We've all got those experiences. It affected all of us. 
And we're finding that when we speak to people, no matter their seniority, we sometimes see one or both of two things. There's one that is that people are just so relieved to be able to do a bit of a debrief and talk about it. You know, the word catharsis has been used a lot in some of our engagements. Um, a lot of people find it quite cathartic and the meetings really wind up into a bit of a catharsis for the people. And that's 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 fine. Cause emotional? Emotional, cognitive, um, a chance to reflect. Do you look over at, say, the UK, which is doing quite a different inquiry, which is, you know, digging into some some pretty private stuff itself, mm, yes. particularly with the politicians. Do you look over there and think, hmm, that would be, that might be quite good to, to go down that line sometimes? Uh, personally, I don't look over there and go, that would be quite good. I think, thank goodness we're doing it this way. Uh, but horses for courses. Now let's think about the UK. They had a very different pandemic experience and they had um, a government process that was a bit jiggity-jaggity, yo-yo, whatever word you want to use. And that probably is more appropriate that that has that type of formal inquiry in it. That's point one. I think we're in different spaces for the context in which you do an inquiry. The second thing is that that inquiry is going to cost a bomb. I think last time I looked at it, it was £120 million and in, in, in growing uh, because you have uh, legal parties that are given an official status and then they need to have their time to do their... Uh, research their cross-examination and the costs really do go up. So you've got to ask the question, what is the most cost-effective way <laughs> to mm. have an inquiry in a country of 5 million people? Um, with a budget of 15 million? With a budget of 15 million mm. and we're going to use every penny of that up until 30 September to get our work done. If you're going to have an inquiry that had more of that adversarial way and the, and the legal hearings, it would cost a lot more. That's just a statement of fact. Now, would it give a better outcome? That's a hypothetical question. Um, my view is that with those free and frank discussions and collecting that information from the people that we're engaging with face-to-face, -face, with the public, and let's not forget, this is unlike, say, Cave Creek, which only happened in New Zealand only on the West Coast. This is an event that happened in every country across the whole world. So the point I'm making here is that all the evidence we're collecting in New Zealand gets fitted in with that international context and the principles about how you respond to a pandemic. Now, I think that, personally, I think that that can be best done by an inquiry in the way that we're doing it with having these free and frank discussions. And also, it's basically what we were directed to do by the um, previous government. I mean, it would be interesting to see if what you're hearing from people now, just after the election or leading up to the election, and whether people feel differently, say early next year, you know, after they've had a bit of a holiday, the warmer weather is here, <laughs> the new government is in place, you know, where the people are in a different mood about things. Yeah, yeah, that's, that sounds like a research question for a PhD one day. <laughs> so out of scope of our inquiry, but you, you, you make a really good point, is that people's reflections are not only dependent on the context of the time they experience, but of the context now. So we are aware of that. And just as one example... Um, I think it's fair to say that some of the reflections we're seeing now, people are sort of remembering more the exit phase from the pandemic because it's closer in time. I mean, this is a human nature. So our job is to bring all that information in and then, you know, next year when we're really 
analysing it deeply and trying to pull out those findings and pull out those recommendations is to do it as evenly as one possibly can, considering the full timeline of the pandemic and the example I just used, not the most recent part of the pandemic, which might be closer in people's memories. And yes, trying to factor out the fact that people may respond to the same question in February after they had a good holiday differently from in November when they can see Christmas coming, but that's, that's our job. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Tony Blakely. Mā te wā.